welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet Podcast. My name is Georgia Ray, and I am your host. Today, we will be continuing our series profiling ELI's visiting attorneys and scholars with Tom Keen Mobegi. Tom Keen is an international law expert whose past work spans international law, climate change, human rights and development in the global south, and environmental governance. He holds a bachelor's degree in law from Kenyatta University. He has also achieved higher level education in law in three countries, Finland, Kenya, and the UK. Most recently, he has earned a PhD in international law from the University of Liverpool. At ELI, he is involved with our project on migration with dignity. Today, we will hear Tom Keen's perspective on intersectional and international legal education, the importance of international treaties, and the unique approach of the United States in the international legal space. We will also touch on third world approaches to international law, the post-2020 biodiversity agenda, and equitable sharing of benefits from genetic resources as outlined in the Nagoya Protocol. Lastly, Tom Keen will share more about his current project with ELI concerning migration with dignity and how ELI's visiting attorney and scholar program has supported his interests. Without further ado, let me introduce you to Tom Keen Mobegi. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today, Tom Keen. And thank you for having me, Georgia. Yeah, of course. So could you give us an overview of how the issues of human rights and climate change intersect in international law, especially as climate change exacerbates pre-existing social, racial, and economic inequalities? So we've recently seen different disasters happening across the world, floods in Afghanistan, drought in Africa and South America. And in many ways, this events are climate change related and we've had our leaders call climate change as one of the greatest threats to humanity and its consequences are largely inseparable from the enjoyment of human rights. There is no doubt that climate change consequences disproportionately impact poor countries and poor people by increasing their vulnerability to human rights violations as much as it impacts their livelihoods as well. This is because poor communities do not have adequate capacities to adapt, mitigate, or build resilience against the impacts of climate change. This has an enormous direct and indirect human rights consequences. Directly, the Human Rights Committee has reported that slow and sudden onset climate-induced disasters are impacting the right to life, food, development, access to sanitation, work, housing, just to name a few of the rights. And indirectly, climate change also exacerbates pre-existing social, racial, economic inequalities between and within countries. And in this way, Indirectly, climate change therefore contributes to the reducing the enjoyment of basic human rights. For instance, when climate change exacerbates poverty, it also amplifies pre-existing social inequalities on issues such as education, racial discrimination, and gender. Mm -hmm. And 
on the aspect of gender, this directly contributes to an increase in gender-based violence. For instance, research from places impacted by severe drought in Africa and South America shows that when climate change impacts issues like access to water, it also causes family disruptions, creating room for an increase in violence against women and girls. These issues are inseparable from the inherent right to dignity, which is the right to be seen and valued mm -hmm. as by virtue of being a human being. Where climate change also impacts access to livelihood or natural resources, such as water, for instance, for livestock in pastoralist communities. Competition for these resources may result in forms of violence that may not only threaten the right to security, national security of a country, but also the liberty and freedom of the affected peoples. And this largely will also impact the ability of these people or communities to access justice and participate in public decision-making processes of their own. I could go on and on, but <laughs> this is just to give an overview mm -hmm. of how climate change is inseparable from the enjoyment of fundamental human rights. Yeah, thank you for that background. I think that is very helpful in situating us for this conversation. And we'll definitely get into some of those pieces that you were talking about more in depth. But before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about your legal educational background and career experience before. So you have degrees in law from Kenya, Finland, and England, and extensive work and research experience in Kenya, England, and here in D.C. It's an impressive resume. Can you share your insights on the differences and how these countries approach international legal education and environmental legal practice differently? Thank you. That's a very difficult question. And maybe I can answer it better by telling my story. I was born in a county called Kisi in the southwest of Kenya. By the time I began school, I already had a strong understanding of the enduring consequences of issues such as poverty, deprivation, and political marginalization. My father served in the Kenya Air Force and he was detained and tortured without trial following the 1982 coup attempt in Kenya. This had a strong impact on how my siblings and I grew up. So my siblings and I attended school knowing that education was the only gateway out of poverty and injustice. I became a lawyer to fight the injustices that people like my father went through or go through in their everyday life. This is how I ended up developing interest in human rights. My interest in environmental law was inspired by the late Wangari Mathai. She was a Kenyan environmental activist and the first African human to win the Nobel Peace Prize in 2004. My transpondary interests, however, were inspired from reading and research. For instance, the story of Ken Sarawiwa. He was a Nigerian environmental and human rights activist who fought for the rights of the Ogoni people of Nigeria regarding the environmental and human rights violations that were caused by oil corporations operating in the Niger Delta. Unfortunately, he was executed in 1995, but his legacy reigns on in the fight to protect environmental defenders and uphold the right to a clean and healthy environment in Africa. So to understand climate change and environmental issues in international law, I've had the privilege to study and work in Kenya, England, and the US, as you stated. 
in terms of differences as to how these countries approach and practice or teach international law, there are as many major differences as there are similarities. It's important to note that Kenya, the UK and the US uh, participate in international law by virtue of their acceptance of the obligations of either the treaties or the declarations established by organizations such as the international law in a way that they accept the obligations to be compliant members of the international community, but also provide certain basic access to certain basic rights for peoples in their territories under laws such as international human rights. So it's an accepted practice in all these three countries that we are going to guarantee access to human rights to our people and then foreigner traveling within or living within our territories. In Kenya, international law is recognized by the constitution as part of the laws of Kenya. So we can say international law is kind of self-executing in Kenya. The fact that the UK does not have a codified constitution, meaning that their constitution is not written in one particular document, leaves the applicability of international law in the UK to the domestication by the House of Commons or interpretation by the courts. This is the domestic law-making process, same as cities in the US Congress or the Senate here in the US, where international law can be latified either with little or too much trouble, depending on the existing political atmosphere or whoever controls the, which party controls the house and what are their priorities. And we've seen this from the past, for instance, how easily the US ratified the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change in the 90s, but handed Pre President Clinton a very strong disapproval when it came to the ratification of the Kyoto Protocol, because the Kyoto Protocol was more binding compared to the UNFCC Convention itself. Historically, Kenya and England have an almost similar approach to international law. Colonial history and its legacies particularly have shaped the UK acceptance of international law and how international law comes into Kenya. International law is a, a key subject in both Kenyan and UK universities. It's also a major discourse in political spaces because of the mutually perceived benefits of membership in international treaties. UK and Kenya both parties to many core multilateral environmental treaties and therefore they've tended to prioritize issues such as illegal trade in wildlife under the Convention on Endangered Trade in Endangered Species or preservation of biodiversity under the Convention on Biological Diversity or just handling of climate change under the UNFCCC, its Kyoto and, uh, Protocol and the Paris Agreement. These treaties have a major influence on the national approaches to lawmaking as well and governance as well as the teaching and practice of law because somehow these national processes cumulatively have a way of showing that these countries are being compliant mm -hmm. to their international law obligations. In the US, international law has been part of the U.S. law since independence. However, the U.S. Constitution does not expressly incorporate international law into its domestic laws. Over the years, therefore, the U.S. approach to international law has been what scholars could describe as unique and specific 
in that we may even start by asking whether the approach is international in itself. Some scholars view the U.S. approach to teaching and thinking about international law as an alternative approach to international law in that the U.S. exceptionally gets to participate in the making of international treaties, but somehow exercises reluctance towards mm. uh, ratifying and implementing those treaties. This choose-and-pick approach of just accepting or implementing international law best serves to uphold the domestic and foreign interests of the U.S. It has appeared to work for them, but somehow it also gets to alienate the U.S. in instances where there are non-parties to certain treaties mm -hmm. and international law processes. We could say that the final utmost impact is mitigated by virtue that the U.S. is a permanent member of the U.N. Security Council and therefore the greatest consequences of non-compliance with international law might be vetoed at the end in any way. Mm -hmm. But by the end of the day, on problems such as environmental degradation, we have a common global problem. And the non-participation of the U.S. in some of these treaties therefore tends to impact how the law is taught within the U.S. and how U.S. students perceive international law vis-a-vis -vis issues outside the U.S. jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. And this therefore probably, I could say, not only impacts how these students get to participate in the addressing of global problems, but also how they build partnerships with everybody across the world. I was planning to get into this a little bit later on, but I feel like now is the right time to talk about the Convention on Biological Diversity. So although the Biden administration has started a campaign to conserve 30% of U.S. land and water by 2030 and committed to other initiatives to conserve biodiversity, the U.S. remains notably absent from the Convention on Biological Diversity. So what are the ramifications of the U.S.'s continued absence from an international agreement like that? And in your opinion, can the U.S. successfully conserve biodiversity without participating? Two years ago, that was in 2021, Stuart Patrick wrote an article in the World Politics Review arguing that the U.S. absence from the membership of the Convention on Biological Diversity is a self-defeating reality. This, I see this as an understatement given that in the six years preceding the signing and ratification or adoption of the Convention on Biological Diversity, the U.S. was extensively involved in the negotiation and drafting of the treaty. With a rich biodiversity conservation history dating as far as back as the, the beginning of the 19th century, for instance, under the Lacey Act and the Endangered Species Act, the U.S. has a lot of history to offer in the modeling and implementation of the Convention on Biological Diversity. When President Clinton signed the treaty in 1993, he noted that the U.S. had enough state and federal laws necessary to offer the effective implementation of the treaty. The treaty was never ratified and therefore the U.S. remains isolated as an unparty, even though it continues to heavily participate as an observer in the biennial CBD conference of the party meetings. This is the governing body of the treaty, which meets every two years to define the implementation agenda and vision for the treaty. And at the state and federal 
levels, there have been strong efforts to conserve biodiversity. And this is enshrined in President Biden's 2030 uh, biodiversity conservation agenda. This is a very commendable effort. The absence of the U.S. therefore has inevitable consequences on the rest of the world, for instance, given that U.S. business, scientific and technological demands for biodiversity and genetic resources continue to utilize biodiversity resources from the rest of the world as well. And this has an impact on how the convention and its protocols are implemented. Five of the top 10 pharmaceutical companies of the world, for instance, are headquartered in the U.S. They operate from here. And their access and usage of genetic resources from other parts of the world in a way that has a transboundary effect may impact the equitable sharing of benefits arising from the utilization of these genetic resources as envisioned in the Nagoya Protocol. While there is a belief, therefore, that the U.S. can effectively and successfully conserve biodiversity without participating in the CBD, the benefits of multilateral cooperation are clear. Biodiversity laws is a transboundary issue and a high degree of solidarity and cooperation is demanded from the community of nations, the U.S. not being an exception, to guarantee its effective use and sustainable conservation. With the 2020 National Security Strategy also designating the unprecedented deadline of biodiversity and its legal access and usage as a threat to national security, the U.S. interests would greatly benefit from the ratification of the convention. Peter Jenkins and William Snape, in one of their research articles, have written how the U.S. would benefit from the CBD and its current status as an anti-party and the consequences of its current status as an anti-party. These benefits can only be enhanced through ratification, and therefore we could say yes, the U.S. might succeed in tackling biodiversity issues through its domestic legislation. But in the long run, the global impact demands the presence of the U.S. at the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for a question that I'm sure the answer is all but simple, why isn't the U.S. ratifying it? In a way, that's, that's a really very interesting question. In a way, we could say that when the treaty was adopted, it created certain obligations and visions that we may as well view as divergent from the existing political, social, and economic priorities of the U.S. And therefore, it's perceived that by participating in the implementation of the Convention on Biological Diversity, the U.S. will be limiting, largely limiting its sovereign rights as to how its people, its businesses, and corporations access and use their biodiversity resources. Mm -hmm. In a way, that tends to be the consequence of international treaties. There are many political reasons behind that, but up to date, I cannot fully pick and say this is the specific reason why they have not ratified because while President H.W. Bush did not refuse completely to sign the treaty, President Clinton signed it and provided what I think he called seven 
component structural approaches to its implementation, submitted them to the Senate, and they that did not in any way fail uh, or grease the wheels for ratification. Mm -hmm. So there is a political a disconnect in the political perception of mm -hmm. biodiversity conservation, I could say, and that of course tends to have a greater impact as to how the U.S. perceived the convention because politics run society, right? Right. Yeah, it always comes back to politics, yeah. especially here in D.C. Mm -hmm. So moving away from the U.S. specifically as a case study, I want to give you some time. I know you contributed to two papers concerning this, you know, Convention on Biological Diversity that we've been speaking about and the Nagoya Protocol on Access to Genetic Resources and the Fair and Equitable Sharing of Benefits Arising from Their Utilization. It's a long title there. So can you talk a little bit more about kind of the intersection between these two? You, you alluded to it in one of your last answers, but just wanted to ask you that directly. So the intersection between the Convention on Biological Diversity and the Nagoya Protocol. Exactly. They are like, this is like a mother and a baby. <laughs> so in 1992, the Convention on Biological Diversity was adopted or rather signed at the United Nations Conference on Environment and Development in Rio. It's one of the three Rio outcome treaties known as the Rio Conventions adopted to address three inseparable and interlinked environmental problems that threaten the realization of the sustainable development. First, if I can define sustainable development, is the pursuit of the our present development agenda without compromising the ability of future generations to also realize their development priorities, whichever those will be. Therefore, these three treaties were adopted to address environmental degradation issues in three ways. The climate change issue was to be addressed by the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, and desertification and drought were to be addressed by the United Nations Convention to combat desertification, and biodiversity laws was to be addressed by the Convention on Biological Diversity. Therefore, the adoption of the Convention on Biological Diversity brought about a strong global recognition of the importance of biodiversity and the need for its conservation. Under the CBD, 196 countries have ratified the treaty and committed to promoting sustainable development through the conservation of biodiversity by promoting its sustainable use and also guaranteeing the fair and equitable sharing of the benefits arising from the utilization of genetic resources. These are three objectives of the CBD. However, within the Convention of Biological Diversity itself, whereby biodiversity is defined as all the varieties of life, including plants, animals, small organisms, etc. And this is particularly covered in Sustainable Development Goal 15 on life on Earth. So the convention itself tends to address the first two objectives, that is conservation of biodiversity and its sustainable usage. Therefore, the convention is primarily driven by countries to realize those two objectives and countries are bound to implement the convention through what we call decisions adopted by the conference of the parties under a 10-year strategic plan and 
national national biodiversity strategies and action plans. These are plans that countries develop on their own as to how they are going to achieve the biodiversity objectives set out in the treaty. Between 2010 and 2020, the CBD was implemented 2011-2020 strategic plan for biodiversity and the Aichi biodiversity targets because they were adopted in a small city called Aichi in Japan in 2010. These targets have however expired in 2020 and December last year the 15th meeting of the Convention on Biological Diversity adopted what we call the post 2020 biodiversity framework also known as the Kunming Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework. The new biodiversity agenda basically contains four goals on the sustainable use and conservation of biodiversity. These goals are backed by like 23 action-oriented targets that need to be achieved by 2030 to reduce threats to sustainable diversity and meet the needs of the people in terms of usage and conservation of biodiversity. And countries will get to report their realization of these objectives through national reports submitted to the CBD secretariat which is is headquartered in Montreal, Canada. Different compliance procedures have been put in place by the conference of the parties to help countries fulfill their obligations under the treaty. In a way, the convention is therefore seen as by failing to fully address the third objectives on the equitable access and utilization of genetic resources and sharing of benefits of course arising from the utilization of genetic resources a number of protocols were adopted under the convention therefore because it's in as a, a framework convention we had the Katakana protocol adopted to address issues of biosafety these are issues related relating to the safe handling transportation and usage of living modified organisms in areas such as biotechnology and bioresearch to reduce threats to biodiversity itself but also human health and then there is the nagoya protocol another baby from the convention on biological diversity on access and benefit sharing of genetic resources it was adopted in 2010 so it's been around for about slightly over 12 years to fulfill the implementation of the third objective on the fair and equitable sharing of the benefits arising from the utilization of genetic resources the protocol has operates in two ways it covers the users of biodiversity and the providers of genetic resources users can be like a pharmaceutical company cosmetics company a technology company that needs to access a genetic and then the providers are like indigenous communities living in a certain forest or a country and they have these resources within their environment and you need to extract them so they give you what we'll call probably prior informed consent or uh you enter into a utilization agreement and you extract these resources but how do these communities benefit from the profit mm -hmm. that you will make from this utilization there are aspects of intellectual property involved and other issues and therefore to ensure that users of genetic resources have fair access to the monetary and non-monetary benefits of utilization having been around as i said for slightly over 12 years the nagoya protocol has for instance strengthened the protection of traditional knowledge 
and the rights of indigenous communities and peoples through the implementation of issues such as prior informed consent and mutually agreed terms negotiated between the communities as the providers and anyone who wants to use their resources therefore as a user. And aspects of intellectual property, as I mentioned, have also been covered. A lot has been achieved under the Nagoya Protocol, but this there is still more that needs to be done. So we can say the protocol is it's like a point towards the right direction mm -hmm. and a higher degree of implementation is needed to realize comprehensively realize its objectives as set out in the Convention of Biological Diversity. That was a super helpful explanation and it got me thinking, you know, you're talking about how we want to recenter the knowledge and the perspective from these local communities, but it's being done through these really multinational, international treaties and frameworks. So I know you as a lawyer, your focus has been on international law and you've contributed knowledge on a wide spectrum of social legal issues while maintaining those partnerships and working relations with those local communities in this multicultural environment. So from your past work, what do you see as the biggest challenges to working in that multicultural environment and what are the biggest obstacles to fostering really effective partnerships with those local communities? That's a really very interesting question, Georgia. I began my career as in international law as an intern and later legal and program assistant at the United Nations. I had the privilege of working with and learning from people from all backgrounds and cultures. This diversity changed my thinking and approach towards the development of global environmental problems. It taught me how to build partnerships with people from all corners of the world and motivate each other to find commonly shared solutions even when our cultural differences may make us think that we are different and fighting for different things. The biggest challenge I faced working in a multicultural environment is my own bias. Where I grew up and what I experienced has in many ways shaped how I imagine other cultures. And it, takes, it has taken a lot of unlearning to understand that the world is way bigger than my village. Through international law, the professionals and the politics behind it, I have learned to appreciate and em embrace the diverse customs and ad attitudes of people from other cultures. Secondly, uh, working in a multicultural environment has taught me to appreciate different languages. People grow up speaking different, uh, different languages and somehow I might not always understand what is being said. I'm multilingual myself, but I may not always be able to communicate with everyone in the languages that I know. And this somehow may breed suspicion, whereas the person sitting next to me expecting to understand what I'm talking about feels like I'm gossiping about them. And these small, small nitty-gritty details of communication have an impact on myself as to how I express myself, but also how I express myself might be negatively perceived by someone from either Europe, America, or China, or the Caribbeans because of their own preconceived biases and misconceptions about 
people who live can behave like me. So to navigate these terrains, I have tried to believe that as Stephen Covey wrote in one of his books, that to be understood, I must first, first seek to understand. Communication is an important skill for anyone navigating and post fostering partnerships in a multicultural environment. And therefore, I believe that this is the only way we can get to address multicultural conflicts or multi address multicultural issues through effective communication. Yeah, that's a, a really good perspective on it. And I want to shift a little bit and talk about a specific paper you wrote about international environmental lawmaking and diplomacy. So maybe a little bit of the more technical side of what you were just talking about. So the title of this paper for our listeners was Third World Approaches to International Law, Opportunities for a Shift in Perspective on the Global South Approaches to Multilateral Trade Agreements and Multilateral Environmental Agreements. So in that paper, you quote the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development and say, quote, for a more constructive treatment of environmental concerns in trade negotiations, it seems important to give priority to the environmental concerns of developing countries, allow them to take the initiative by expanding their appreciation of the stakes involved and offering them positive trade related incentives, end quote. Can you re-explain that quote in your own words and explain what actions need to be taken to have this realized today? So that quote is from Mehmet Ada. He's, uh, he or she, not to confuse the gender, was from the United Nations Conference on Trade and Environment and also known as the UNCTD, one of the bodies working to foster uh, the benefits of trade in developing countries. And my paper particularly interrogates trade and environmental matters from a global south perspective to create justification for an integrated approach to issues affecting developing countries or issues that developing countries have to address when dealing with questions related to trade and environment. As we all might be aware that trade and environmental matters are largely inseparable, particularly within the sustainable development agenda and the multilateral environmental agreements and multilateral trade agreement system. The multilateral environmental agreements governance system is quite fragmented and it's covered by different treaties. Also, the multilateral trade agreement system is also uh, multifaceted and falls largely within the WTO, but there are other entities involved there, like the UNCTD, for instance. And therefore, for developing countries, trade is seen as a means to achieving their development goals. And therefore, because they're still striving to develop, they tend to believe that they must participate in trade with other countries and within their own countries as well. However, environmental problems in developing countries such as climate change, ozone depletion, hazardous chemicals and wastes, and biodiversity loss and degradation have strong linkages to trade. Mehmet Ada, therefore, in this quote, calls for a balanced approach to trade and environment whereby we do not trade benefits on one side for producing consequences on the other side and vice versa. 
This is to say that international trade can give priority to both the development needs of developing countries and the environmental conservation needs of these developing countries. One country may invoke environmental concerns as a pretext for practicing in discriminatory trade policies. Reforms in bodies such as the WTO can be used to promote compliance with the environmental safeguard standards, therefore helping countries achieve their environmental objectives. It's interesting to see that this week, just I think about two days ago, the European Union has submitted some proposals to the ongoing WTO reform process, arguing that trade can be an important part of addressing policy challenges related to issues such as climate uh, transition and tackling of global environmental challenges such as pollution and biodiversity degradation in a more sustainable and inclusive way. This is a step in the right direction, and I hope that when the proposal is presented to the WTO Council, General Council meeting in March, developing countries will also have a chance to offer their inputs as well. So let me make sure I'm understanding here. The previous status quo was that trade was being used in a way that they, you know, certain countries said was helping benefit environmental conservation and protection in their own countries, but was kind of farming out those same problems to other countries. Is that, and now we're moving forward in a direction where, you know, the sustainability and the economic benefits in all countries is more intertwined. Is that a correct understanding? Largely since if we go back to the 1970s when the Stockholm Conference on Environment was held, there was something in Chapter 11 of the report of the Stockholm Conference. They talked about action plan for the human environment. Here, a couple of recommendations tried to prioritize global environmental action, but also it appears that from these recommendations, there was in a way that the wording was structured in a way that it could be perceived that trade was seen as supreme over environmental conservation. That mm. was specifically not the intention, but politically it can be interpreted to be seen like that. For instance, recommendation 103 of the Stockholm conference recommended that countries participating in the conference agree not to invoke environmental concerns as a pretext to discriminatory trade policies. So in a way, what do you see from that? You see that if I cannot invoke my environmental priorities to limit trade practices that impact my environment, so how am I going to proceed about this? And that therefore leaves some questions right. unanswered. But over time, these questions have been clarified. And from the 2030 Sustainable Development Agenda and the Sustainable Development Goals, we get to see the co-benefits and interlinkages that can be utilized to balance this out. Okay. Yeah. So so it's treating trade and environmental concerns on true equal footing is what yeah. we're moving towards, we're whereas moving before towards. trade was kind of implicitly prized over these environmental considerations. Yes. Trade has always been like it's mm -hmm. one of the oldest practices between countries. It goes way back in history to the era of enlightenment and civilization, mm -hmm. whereas environmental issues particularly began gaining global prominence in the 1970s. But in a way, uh, we can 
put them on an equal footing, be like, for long, trade has, has contributed to the degradation of the environment, and therefore we need to adopt environmental conservation priorities that do not undermine trade, but promotes what we might call as sustainable and inclusive trade, mm -hmm. or what we might call as green, resilient, and inclusive trade and development practices. Okay, so that's yeah. the kind of work that's happening right now. Yes. Okay, well, that's super interesting, helpful for me to understand that, you know, the importance of those inter international mechanisms. So we're really closing in on the end of our episode here, but I do want to talk a little bit about the work you've been doing at ELI, and that is on Migration with Dignity. Can you tell us a little bit about the Migration with Dignity project and your role? At ELI, I'm a visiting scholar currently working on the Migration with Dignity project led by Carl Breitsch and Christine Perry. In a nutshell, the Migration with Dignity project is founded on the principle that every human being is inherently bestowed with fundamental human rights and an intrinsic value that should be upheld, respected, and protected when addressing internal or international migration challenges. By employing the concept of human dignity to understand and address human mobility challenges, the project presents us with a migration with dignity framework or an imagination or a space that offers states, policymakers, and government organizations and other stakeholders an opportunity to put human dignity at the center of their responses to the challenges and experiences of migrants at the key stages of the migration cycle. The aim is to help migrants cope with vulnerability and protect their human rights. The Migration with Dignity framework particularly emphasizes that issues such as freedom of movement, including the right to leave and return to one's country, the security of migrants, particularly relating to the protection against violence, sexual exploitation, and human violations, or human trafficking, for instance, and issues of equality, particularly relating to access to legal protection and basic services, work, shelter, access to healthcare, education, freedom of speech, are incorporated into how we address migration challenges. Over the years, we've seen issues such as Brexit in Europe, the 2015 migration crisis in the Mediterranean region and also from South America into uh, North America, the United States in particular, generate these populist perspectives that migration is a threat to certain cultures. This tends to view peoples from certain spaces as pests that should be controlled not to invade existence, but also would largely benefit from the entry of migrants into these spaces. Issues such as climate change have also exacerbated migration challenges and also impacting the enjoyment of the human right to dignity. And we are currently in the project trying to expand the scope of our work to look at the migration with dignity challenges presented by climate change, regional economic integration and political developments, and the externalization of national borders. By the end of the day, we are 
a global community. The world is becoming more like a global village. And there are certain enormous benefits of human mobility that can be realized both for countries, but also by people when we put the dignity of the people at the center of our policy and political decisions. Yeah, I feel like I have a bunch of follow-up questions from that, but in the interest of time, I'll focus on on one in particular. And I, I'd love to hear how climate refugees really fit into this entire, you know, my migration with dignity framework. I will say that the so-called climate change refugees are currently at the forefront of national as well as international climate change political and security agenda. In my PhD research, I examined the question of climate-induced migration, specifically looking at the implications of climate change impacts on the practice of human migration in international law. As climate change penetrates concerns about human migration, development, fragility, conflict, violence, just name the whole portfolio, studies have shown that climate change will force about 200 million people to migrate within and between countries by 2050 in addition to also disrupting economic development gains and severely weakening access to basic services such as water, education, healthcare, climate change will force people to migrate by exacerbating existing conflicts or triggering new ones by amplifying the underlying economic, social and political injustices and inequalities. These are issues that when interpreted can amount to what I was trying to explain earlier as a form of persecution. Per se, it might be very controversial if someone had me correlate these issues to persecution in a very casual way, but studies have tried to pin this down in a way, and this will impact the human rights and dignity rights of climate refugees particularly as they flee areas impacted by extremely slow and sudden onset climate disasters or climate-associated disasters in general. By placing migration with dignity, therefore, at the center of climate-induced migration crisis, we begin to address the problem in ways that promote the protection of all human rights as opposed to the privileging of racialized border violence or securitization rhetoric because we subscribe to the agenda of a given political party. In this way, the affected peoples can be guaranteed access to a wide range of economic opportunities, protection, and security in ways that not only reduces their vulnerability, but also reposition the issue of migration and human mobility as one that can be used to realize climate adaptation strategies to countries that are mostly vulnerable to climate change consequences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's kind of connecting back to what we were talking earlier about those multicultural, multinational collaborations. Definitely, yes, it yeah. does. Okay, well, I have one final question for you, and it's a question that I like to ask all of our visiting scholars who are guests on this show. So how has ELI as an organization and the Visiting Scholars Program more specifically supported you in your efforts to advance global environment and development objectives? I'm extremely grateful to ELI for the opportunity to be here because 
the work that ELI is doing to ensure a health environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law is closely interlinked with my efforts to undertake research and develop solutions that address social legal issues and injustices connected to climate change, environmental degradation, and develop uh, sustainable development in uh, global South countries. Through the Visiting Scholars Program, I have been able to contribute to research and analysis to promote dignity and human rights in the practice and governance of internal and international migration. I have learned a lot by engaging with the ELI staff and other visiting scholars and borrowing from their diverse perspectives and approaches to addressing some of the biggest challenges of our time. I have only been in DC for three years now and the regular ELI events and briefings have largely helped me to build a network of like-minded professionals with whom I can collaborate in a mutually beneficial manner. Last year, for instance, I attended the annual ELI Award Dinner where Benjamin Wilson was awarded the Environmental Achievements Award. I have attended many environmental law events and conferences in my life, but this one remains a particularly unique experience because of its focus on inclusion and diversity. The opportunity to see so many lawyers gathered in one room and putting aside their fragmented practices because environmental law has over the years fragmented into many pieces of practices. We have energy, we have water, we have biodiversity, we have chemicals, we have waste. You name the whole a mix. But to have these people in one room celebrating the impact of one person inspired me to not only aspire to leave a mark in the world, but also connect with people in ways that just makes them valued, not only as professionals, but also as human beings. And I see that as something that was made possible by ELI. So I'm extremely grateful for this opportunity. Yeah, that's a, a really lovely sentiment and also a great opportunity for me to plug that we have a podcast episode that came out with Ben Wilson right before the award dinner. So if you want to hear a little bit what, about what Tom Keen was just referring to and the what Ben Wilson spoke about, you can definitely check out that episode as well. But as for this episode, that does bring me to the end. So thank you so much for joining me and sharing your perspective on these international issues. I really did learn a lot today. Thank you for having me. I think I've also learned a lot. Of course, I'm glad this was able to provide that space for you. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.